Well, good evening, everybody. Um, it's really wonderful. Well, it's a strong start. Oh, yeah, that's all right. Anyways, good evening, everybody. It is good uh, to be with you tonight, and it is exciting to be talking with you in this in this new space here at Heritage, which, um, as we said earlier, is a space that we're hoping we can make distinct to us as a church family. Um, tonight, as you've already experienced a few times, we're inaugurating a new model for our services, which includes some more traditional elements of the church's liturgy than we would normally use. If you've been around for Advent at um, any time in the last few years, uh, then this is going to feel familiar, but our hope is that um, it's also still a little bit different. So it's worth taking a few minutes here at the start to say what it is that we're actually up to with all of this. Our church's vision, our missional focus, is on creating a safe space for folks who have questions about this faith that we all share, as well as doubts in some cases about the ways churches in the past have sought to share that faith, and to create a space where we can all engage with the person of Jesus and what it means for us to make him the Lord of our lives. In the past, as a church, in the last 12 years, we've done this by trying to strip away a lot of what makes a church service confusing for folks. And so we focused in on the absolute kind of core elements of, of a church service. So gathering to sing and hearing teaching from scripture and receiving Holy Communion. But as time has passed in the last 12 years, it's become increasingly clear that what we've been missing with this stripped down approach to a worship service is, as Claire said, this element of participation. It's, it's one thing to be able to sit comfortably in the dark and to hear about Christian faith. But a worship service also needs to be a place where we can experience and we can practice that faith in the safety of a church community like this one. So knowing isn't enough. Christian life is, is for living out. And there was this disconnect for us, I think, as a church, when it came to what we were asking folks to do during the week and then what we were actually preparing them to do in our weekly services. And so our hope uh, is that by thoughtfully incorporating more participatory parts in our services, we're going to create more opportunities for you to question and to wrestle and to engage with your own faith. The goal, to be, to be crystal clear about it, is not to pressure you into saying or doing things that you're not ready to do or that you don't mean. You can always opt out of any practice in our services without judgment or without fear, but rather the goal is to, to create moments of reflection for you where you can ask yourself, is this, is this really what I believe? Does this faith that I'm, that I'm practicing really bring wholeness to me in my life? Do I want to connect to something bigger than my own story? And what are the actual steps that, that I could take to begin to experience that connection and to allow it to shape me and to change me? So I hope that that makes some amount of sense. And I hope that you hear my heart in sharing all of it. I want you to experience this faith because it matters. I want you to experience this faith because it matters. I don't have all the answers about it. And I don't think that we could ever hope to summarize those answers, even if we did have them, in a slogan or in a sermon or even in a service. But what we can do, 
What we can do is this. What we can do is we can hold each other by the hand and we can take another step in the direction of Jesus together and we can walk in faith for just one week more. That's something we can do. And then we can gather together next Saturday. We can see the little green shoots of life are springing up amongst us as we take those steps. And then we can celebrate that life together as a church family. And then we can let the sun continue to do its work while we tend to that life that's growing together as a community. That's my pitch. That's what we're up to. That was a long intro. That was a long intro. But it's also not really very far from, from our topic tonight. We're here tonight to talk about the feelable mystery of Jesus. The feelable mystery of Jesus. I know that feelable is not a real word. Any of you are, are checking my English grammar credentials right now. I know that the right word would be tangible, or if not that, maybe physical or experiential or material. But feelable, I think, is a little more sticky. And I think that I want this word to stick for you this week. So we're here to talk about the feelable mystery of Jesus. As we've been working through the first half of the Gospel of Mark this past month, here's what we've seen to kind of recap a bit. Mark organizes his account of Jesus' life a bit like a trial in a courtroom. He says at the beginning who he is accusing Jesus of being. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah of Israel, who the prophets say is going to usher in the very kingdom of God. And then he's also God's son, who would then rule in God's kingdom as, as his heir. This means that Jesus functions in these two roles. He's a deliverer, and he's also supposed to be a king. And those are two really important roles if we think about who Israel is, because that means Jesus is Moses, and Jesus is also David. And in order to convict Jesus of these titles, the author of the Gospel of Mark brings in these witnesses to testify to Jesus' identity. And this is what we saw in chapter 1, were those testimonies to Jesus' identity. And then the author of Mark's Gospel allows the priests and the leaders of Jesus' own time to speak. The current Jewish authorities who are people who doubt Jesus' identity. And he gives them space in the second chapter to cross-examine him. And that's what we see in chapters 2 and 3 in particular. And their argument boils down to this. The Messiah must be holy. But Jesus is perpetually staining himself by violating Sabbath laws and associating with people who are unclean. The question for them and for us also becomes, where then does holiness come from? Where then does holiness come from? Does it come from the outside, so to speak, when we obey the law? Or does it come from the inside out, beginning with heart change and then uncontaminating or purifying all the things that it touches? For the last few weeks, we've been exploring the second option, how Jesus redefines purity and how he redefines family along the way. And last week, we even saw Jesus, when Paul preached for us, last week we even saw Jesus go to the least holy place thus far imaginable in his story when he physically lays hands on a demon-possessed man who's living in a graveyard filled with pigs belonging to Gentiles. That's all the things. That's all the dirty things in one story. We have demons and death and pork and pagans. Which would be a good punk album title, actually. <laughs> but somehow, even in the middle of all that, Jesus isn't corrupted or stained. And instead, he works this miracle that brings purity 
and brings life. So, along with the Pharisees, we are in this position now to wonder, who is this man? Could he actually be the Messiah? And if he is the Messiah, what does it mean that my expectations for the Messiah have been so wrong? This week, we're going to be looking at this sequence of stories that run through chapters 6, 7, and 8 of Mark's gospel, which I already was criticized by the slides team before we started today by saying, that's a lot of Mark that we're reading tonight. And I was like, yes, it's true. So we're reading this long stretch from 6, 7, and 8. And, and we might call this, what I'm calling this, I haven't heard this in any official commentaries, but I'm naming this stretch of things in 6, 7, and 8 the bread thread. The bread thread. Because it's this long series of stories where bread keeps coming up over and over again. And so in the first of these stories, Jesus has gone away from the towns that he's been teaching in so that he and his disciples can get some rest of all things. But in verse 33 of chapter 6, we read this. Many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And so when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. But by this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus answered, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread? And give it to them to eat? Well, how many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. And then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. Jesus gave thanks and he broke the loaves and then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. Jesus, in this story, allows his time of rest to be interrupted by these crowds. And he says something remarkable about them, right? He says that these crowds are like sheep without a shepherd. I love that description. Sheep without a shepherd. It says something in like the fewest possible words here that gets to the very heart of Jesus' personality as we're seeing it in Mark's gospel, which is that Jesus is compassionate for people. Over and over, he's compassionate. Which means that he doesn't expect them to get themselves right with him before he meets their needs. He isn't waiting on them to say some magic words or to beg him for a favor. He just simply sees them. And he sees us, right? For what we all are, which is just simple people we're drawn beyond ourselves to a miracle. Theologians often note that most of the crowds that gather around Jesus during his Galilean ministry are not doing this for very noble reasons. They're not gathering, notably, in the synagogues, which we know Jesus is going among and teaching in, right? But that's not where they come to him. They don't go to the synagogues. They gather in wild places in order to catch the miracle. And sometimes this becomes the not a knock on those crowds, right? They just want what Jesus can give them. It's easy to see them that way. But we should always note that Jesus doesn't seem to see them that way. Jesus seems to see them as sheep 
who are frightened and lost and who are uncertain. And he loves them. In this story, the love comes by way of a miraculous feeding, right, of bread, one which Jesus invites the disciples to actually be the ones to make happen. When I read the story, I wonder if the crowds even recognize that the miracle happens or if they just assume the disciples brought a lot of bread or maybe went out and spent all that money they were talking about. I'm also not convinced this matters very much, right? They were hungry and then Jesus fed them. The power on display here wasn't meant to impress the crowd. The power that's on display was meant to meet their needs. The audience for this miracle, such as there is one, in the end is the disciples. And we soon see that those disciples miss the point. After dinner, the disciples get into a boat while Jesus prays for the crowds and sends them home. And as the disciples make their way across the lake in this boat, a storm comes up and they're frightened. And in the distance, they catch sight of a ghostly figure who's walking on the water. And it's Jesus, of course. But they cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. And then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. I love this. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. What is it the disciples didn't understand about the loaves? It takes a while for us to get an answer, because when Jesus arrives with them on the far shore, we have this interlude that kind of jumps into our story that's another one of these interludes with the Pharisees and it hits all the same notes that we've heard played before. This time the disciples are eating and they're eating what are they eating? You can you know it's bread. Of course they're eating bread and they're doing this without washing their hands. And the Pharisees who rightly see Jesus as the disciples shepherd, right? Shepherd, the sheep without a shepherd, Jesus is their shepherd. So he's responsible for their behavior and so they chastise Jesus for not making his disciples hold to the rules about cleanliness. But Jesus, at this point, seems to have had just about enough of their foolishness, so he says this to them. He finally starts getting pretty confrontational. He says, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. It's the same refrain that we've heard before. The Pharisees are acting as if rule following is the thing that makes us holy rather than rule following as the thing that serves as a structure for wisdom, which is, which is what rule following is supposed to be. But then Jesus goes further in verse 14. He says, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. And the neighboring towns, which are now found not in Jewish territory, but because they crossed the lake, remember, are now found in the territory of the Jews' enemies, the Gentiles. In those towns, Jesus continues to perform miracles for his lost sheep. And these miracles culminate in this curious moment that can feel super redundant if we lose sight of where they all are. In Mark 8, Jesus again miraculously feeds a large crowd. We just saw him do it. The technique is exactly the same. He gathers the food that the disciples have and he multiplies it. 
Everybody eats until they're full, and then Jesus and the disciples head back to their boat again to cross once again, this time back to the Jewish side of the lake. And as they're crossing, this amazing incident occurs. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread again, except for one loaf that they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. And they discussed it, they discussed this with one another, and they said, it is because we have no bread, which I don't know why that is like what they thought was happening, but that's what gets recorded here. It's, he's saying this because we have no bread. And aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they reply. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? I said at the outset that our subject tonight is the feelable mystery of Jesus. And this is what I meant. The reason Jesus is here is so we can reach out and touch him. The God of the whole universe, the Messiah and the deliverer of Israel, the king of all creation wants to serve you because you are a sheep without a shepherd. The thing about the bread, and you can read a ton of commentaries that get real interested in the numbers there and the, the baskets and all that stuff, and that's fascinating, but I'm not going there tonight. Instead, what I wanna say this, I wanna say is this, the thing about the bread, the thing the disciples keep struggling to understand is that Jesus keeps making more of it and giving it away to people. That's the thing about the bread. He makes more even than people can eat. There are baskets left over every time he makes more bread. And all the people do, all they need to do in order to receive that bread that he keeps miraculously making is just accept it. Just take it. The yeast of the Pharisees is an incantation. The yeast of the Pharisees is a recipe that's designed to convince God that they are worthy, that we are worthy of deliverance. But that isn't Jesus. Jesus delivers the unworthy because he, because he knows that a lost sheep can't know where it belongs and how to behave in the place that it belongs if a shepherd doesn't first come and find it and bring it home. If a shepherd doesn't first feed it and comfort it, welcome it, and then train it for its best and intended purpose. The feelable mystery of Jesus is his compassion. It's this wild and generous aspect of Christ that lets us reach out and touch God first before we deserve to. The thing that is contagious here isn't 
corruption, the thing that is contagious over and over in these stories is holiness. Holiness is contagious. And we tell ourselves so many stories about how far away God is from us. We all do this. We've done this for 2,000 years longer. We tell ourselves stories about how far away God is from us and how much work it is surely going to take if we're ever going to reach him. But that is not the God whose son is Jesus. Our God is right here. He is not on the other side of some great chasm as a certain cartoon many of you have seen at various points in your lives on like little tracks you picked up has told you. He's not on the other side of some great chasm. He's right here. But it can be so, so hard to remember that and to believe that because the fact that Jesus is right here just simply feels like too much love and we don't understand about the loaves. We don't understand about the loaves. One of the most important reasons why we are here, why we're gathered together as a church, is because we have to keep working at learning this very lesson. We have to experience God routinely in moments like the ones that we celebrate here as a church family because if we don't do this routinely, then the gap that our fear leads us to believe, this gap is formed between what our fear leads us to believe about God and how God sees us and the truth about how God actually sees us. What we need is to keep seeing him with a soft heart and doing this work together is how we do that. We need to be eager to have our assumptions challenged, to have our minds blown by God over and over again. What we have in Jesus is unimaginable access to an utterly overwhelming God. That's what we see over and over and over and over again, and we forget it. And what is so wild and so excessive and inconceivable about God, the thing we're stuck on is his grace. It's his love. It's his unthinkable and his unrelenting willingness to pour himself out for the people and the world that he's made, even when they don't deserve it. And every time, every time that we try to put a limit on God's kindness, he blows past that limit. And every time we try to say this far and no further, surely a God as mighty and as just and as powerful as the God of the universe would draw a line here. God says, do you still not understand? There's this short story that's sandwiched in between the, the larger miracles here. Intercalated, if you remember our vocabulary word from two weeks ago. But this short story is what we're going to look at as we close. In this story, Jesus has gone to a village outside of Tyre and a foreigner to the Jews, a Syrio-Phoenician woman, falls at Jesus' feet and begs him to release her daughter from a demon. And Jesus says this to her. Remember, we are in the bread thread. He says, first let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. And this, I think, is the attitude of the Pharisees that Jesus is giving voice to, isn't it? It's the rational attitude that you would expect a Messiah to have. Because the Messiah has come for Israel. He's not come for Israel's enemies. But the woman says this. She says, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And then he 
told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and she found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. And if you don't remember anything else from today's sermon, I want you to remember just this thing. What crumbs? What crumbs? If healing, if feeding, if forgiving, if grace is only the stuff that falls to the floor from the banquet of God's table, then what is the meal? And what does it mean for us to be invited to that meal, not even as guests, but as the very children of God? Do not put a limit on God's love. Do not seek the edges of God's generosity. If what you are looking for is life, then let life pour into you so completely that there's no holding it in. Let it overflow from your life just as rapidly as it enters your life. We talk sometimes about radical generosity as a church, but we just don't even know the half of what radical generosity is. If we could be in touch with what God is giving us, we wouldn't even have to think for a moment about what we give or, or who we make room for in our lives or what causes we support or, or with our finances or what rooms we open up in our homes or what children or what strangers we take into our homes or what time we make to pray or to read or to listen to God. We wouldn't have to think about any of that. We would give freely because we have freely received. We have felt the mystery of God because God has made that mystery feelable to us. And so the mantra that I want us to have for this week and the thing that I want us to check in on next week when we gather is this. Give. Give. Let your compassion be feelable to others. Live generously this week in all the ways which make sense to you. And even maybe in some ways that don't make sense to you. Look for the Messiah who is, not the Messiah that you were expecting. Because the Messiah that is, is here in this place and in this community and in a holy mystery in these elements that we're going to take and receive in just a moment. In a moment as we practice receiving communion, as we practice receiving Christ, let yourself wonder and pray, how am I sharing him? How am I sharing him? I'll pray for us and then we'll proceed tonight. God, thank you for loving us in ways that we cannot understand. Thank you for teaching us the lesson of the bread over and over and over again. And God, I'm going to keep this prayer short and just ask that we hear it, that I hear it. That wherever I keep trying to put limits on you and on how generous you are, and then by extension how generous I'm supposed to be, that I will continue to remember that you make more than we can even eat. That you require nothing of us before you seek to find us, to feed us, to care for us, to love us, to make yourself feelable to us. That you're right here, and all I have to do, all any of us have to do, is just accept you. God, thank you for pouring so crazily and generously into my life. And I pray that I will be a conduit of what you pour in, that it will pour through me and go out, and others will see in my life, that through my life they will experience in some small way that feelable mystery of who you are.
I love you, God. I pray that you would do that work in me. You would do that work among us. In your son's name, amen.